invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. Luke is the third book of the New Testament, the third gospel. So if you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, following that will be John, Acts, and Romans. We'll be in Luke chapter 14 today, and I will be in a couple of different places in the chapter. Our, our focus text is Luke 14, 15 through 24, which is a parable of a great banquet that Jesus gives. And as Caitlin mentioned earlier, today is Inclusion Sunday. It's been called Disability Awareness Sunday, but it's not just about awareness and what we know. It's also about who and how do we include the whole body of Christ. Now, one thing that I'm convicted of and have to own this morning as one of your pastors and someone who preaches regularly is I only think about the way that I learn. And you may be picked up on this because I don't always have a lot of use of the screen. I don't do a lot with visuals. Sometimes I like to have some prop up here, usually a martial arts weapon or something related to agriculture because those are the two things that I love. But I don't do a lot with visuals, in part because... Wait, what? Oh, my goodness. Three-year-olds through second graders are dismissed for children in worship. You know what? We didn't have that in the order of worship. And on top of that, the, the slide is always our backup when we forget. Thank you, Sharon and Valerie. Yeah, three-year-old through second graders are dismissed for children in worship. I'm glad somebody said something. Otherwise, everybody would start to get really nervous. Like, I thought we were supposed to leave. That's actually a pretty good example, though, of why Inclusion Sunday is a thing. Because I'm thinking about what I do on Sunday morning, which is usually be up here for preaching and liturgy. I'm not thinking about what everyone else does. I'm not thinking about the kids. For one, Ada's not that age yet. And, well, for two, it's Caitlin that keeps track of her better anyway. But the same thing translates out in preaching. I'm an auditory learner. And so even though I wasn't necessarily a good student, school wasn't that hard because I like to just show up, listen to a lecture, hear someone speak, I take away what I need, and then I'm done. That's how I learn. And so when I teach and preach, I do much the same thing. I have spoken words, and I like crafting words with stories and a good pun here and there or a not-so-good pun, but it's never worth passing up a good pun. But I don't always use visuals, because I don't always have a mind for inclusion. I'm not thinking about, for some people, they're visual learners. They need to see a picture. There needs to be an object for them to focus their learning on. And today, I've just got slides with, with words, because I'm all about just listening and hearing. But for others, they need to see it and read it. They need to read the words as a way to follow along. Inclusion Sunday is an opportunity that we take to be intentional about the entire body of Christ, how different people are tuned in, how different people learn, and how different people serve. Because we are not all the same, praise God. And so today, we'll focus on what does it mean to be inclusive. And we'll use Luke chapter 14 
verses 15 through 24 as our primary text, as Jesus leads us in what inclusion can look like in the church. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's pray. God, our holy and sovereign Father, may your word be our rule. Your Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, and the glory of Christ and the growth of his kingdom, our utmost concern. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, "I I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. For I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In very simple terms, there is a breakdown in this text between two different types of guests. And the breakdown is this. On the one side... There are those who think that they are too important to go to this banquet. Too important, too busy, too much stuff on their plate, too much of life happening for them to be able to go to this banquet. Have you ever felt just a little bit too busy, too much going on? There are certainly those who are too important to go to the banquet. But on the other side there are those who would find themselves to be too unworthy. Those who would not dare to assume that they belong at the banquet that the master is hosting. There are those who are too important and those who would never assume an invitation because they find themselves to be unworthy. In the simplest breakdown of who all gets invited and attends this banquet, it is those two points. Now, parables are always so full of depth. And to understand this parable well and to understand the reaction that those hearing Jesus say these words for the first time would have, we need to know a little bit about the context. And for one, a very important piece of this context is the honor-shame culture that Jesus lived in. 
And the honor-shame culture, we get traces of it here today, but it's even stronger in Jesus' day. In an honor-shame culture, it's not just about wealth that gives you status, although wealth plays a big role. But in short, it's who do you have the social standing to be in good company with? In essence, who's coming to your house for dinner? And whose house are you getting invited to go to for dinner? In an honor-shame culture, there's one way to climb the social ladder. Not even a corporate ladder, because corporations aren't a thing at this point. But to climb the social ladder, to climb to higher levels of, in society, it's based on honor and shame. Now, if you, were in, if you were inviting people to your house to bring honor to yourself, you need to, first of all, invite all of your peers And if you forget someone, if you leave them out, you will bring shame upon them, and that'll be a bad mark against them, and it could be a bad mark against you. You need to invite all of your peers first. But also to gain honor, to move yourself up the ladder just a little bit, you need to dare to invite someone just a little bit more important than you, someone who has a little bit more status than you. Because if you invite them to your house and they become your guest they will be obligated to invite you to their house and you will be their guest and you have moved up just one notch in the social ladder. Honor and shame. But don't invite too high because what if you invite someone who's so much more important than you that they can't come to your banquet? It would be a bad mark against them. They'll turn down your invitation. And to refuse invitation can be a source of shame. Maybe we've experienced this with who we invite to dinner and who we don't. But in Jesus' day, this was how society worked. This was the fabric of social relations, was honor and shame. And the greatest way to test it and to know who is who and who is important was whose house you get to eat dinner at and who eats dinner at your house. But now, let's consider the surrounding passages Jesus understands this honor-shame culture very well, although he doesn't endorse it. But in verses 8 through 11 of Luke 14, he gives some spectacular advice on how to navigate this honor-shame culture. Beginning at verse 8, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person of more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, there's the shame. You will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there's some layers of meaning involved in that parable that Jesus teaches. But it's also brilliant advice for how to operate in an honor-shame culture. Just always take the low rope, and then people will move you up to a higher place of honor. And it will make you look good. It seems almost obvious, doesn't it? But Jesus is not endorsing this way of life, of honor and shame, that that's how we mark human value and how important a person is. 
Because Jesus teaches us that we're all created in the image of God. So instead, Jesus continues. In verses 8 through 11, he gives great advice. It's practical. But there's a little turn of meaning involved too. But in verses 12 to 14, Jesus turns this on its head. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, those of the same status as you, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Do you hear the tones of honor involved here? Invite your peers, invite your family, but also your rich neighbors, because they're your ticket to a higher social standing. Because if you invite them, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is turning this honor-shame culture on its head. He's telling the people at this banquet to not invite the people that bring status to themselves, but actually to invite those who would bring shame or lowering of status. Those are the people to invite. Not those who can reciprocate your invitation, but those who in an earthly setting cannot repay you at all. Because Jesus sees beyond one culture's honor-shame. Every culture has ways of officiating social status. Jesus sees beyond this because he's looking towards what? Towards the resurrection of the righteous. At which point, for what you have given to others that they cannot repay you, you will then be rewarded. Jesus is going beyond and behind the context that he's in, although he knows how to navigate it well. That's why Pharisees would so often invite Jesus to their house because, well, They have to keep up with the times. They have to keep up with their social standing. That's the context in which Jesus lives. And all of the hearers of this parable, of the great banquet, are attuned to how society works in terms of honor and shame and bringing importance to yourself. And Jesus pushes against that. And so in Luke 14, 15 through 24... We're given three examples of guests who turn down. They turn down the invitation. There are justifiable excuses. Go one forward to justifiable excuse. Thanks, Connor. Earlier I told Connor that I had a slideshow for him and that it would just require him to pay attention, and Scott Packard said, well, good, that'll at least make one person. Thanks, Scott. (laughs) We appreciate you. But nonetheless, there are justifiable excuses that are given. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there were excuses that you could give to get out of military service if you had just bought a house or if you were engaged. And Jesus is riffing on those reasons just a little bit for the reasons people use to get out of going to this banquet, to turn down the invitation. One has just bought a field, which is important. If you've ever bought a field, you have to go check it out. Another, seeming a little bit foolish, has bought oxen that he seems to know nothing about, which seems like, I don't know, buying a tractor that you've never seen in person, which I guess some people do. But the excuses come up. All of the worldly busy things are becoming excuses. We can't go to your banquet. And in some sense, they seem justifiable. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Well, fair enough. 
you're busy with life. But these justifiable excuses betray three things. These people are unconcerned with the honor of the master of the house. Because for them to turn down the master's invitation will bring about shame for him. They refuse his invitation. That reflects on the master. And it seems that these three examples given show complete unconcern for the excuses and what it will cause for their master's honor. There's also a simple lack of realization. A lack of realization of the importance of the banquet that they're getting invited to. Consider that about once a month, we gather at the table for the banquet of our Lord. And we are celebrating communion, the forgiveness of sins. Communion made right with God through the Holy Spirit and through Christ's sacrifice. And Jesus in this parable, this is before his death and resurrection, is hinting that there are people who don't understand the significance of the feast of heaven and earth, the banquet of the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table. And perhaps most indicting is that there is no concept of consequences. Sure, they're going to turn him down for one banquet, but how bad can it be? Because in an honor-shame culture, if they turn him down once, he has to try harder to get them to come to the next banquet. And yet, Jesus says in the last verse of this parable, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. There is a sense of consequence that for those who have to go check out the field and check out the oxen and are headed out on their honeymoon, they don't have any concept of the consequence that is to face them. Their excuses fall flat. And because their excuses don't line up with the master's perspective. The master's perspective, his goal throughout the parable is to get his house full, not with people who are full of themselves. Do you want a house full of people or people full of themselves? And so instead of just lamenting and begrudging or trying really hard to convince the people, well, I know you've just bought a field, but please, he does not beg and plead with those who have turned down his invitation. Instead, compel them, make them come, he tells to his servant. Now, if you're using your pew Bible... It's the 1984 NIV. And so in in this passage, the word is translated, make them come. 2011 or forward, or the ESV will say, compel them. Compel them to come. Jesus, in telling this parable, is saying the master will compel everyone else to come. Now, it used to bother me. It used to bother me a lot that Jesus, in this parable, has the master sending out his servant to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And, and then he gets some of them, but then he sends the servant out again and says, make them, compel them to come in. It almost seems like he's taking advantage of the people who can't say no. But once again, it's a slightly different lens that the hearers of this parable would understand than ours. It's not a matter of force, this word of make them or compel them. It's not physical force that we're dragging people away as if into captivity. But it is compel as in reason beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are welcome. Refuse to take no for an answer. 
And some of these people would have good reason to say no to an invitation to a banquet. The poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame would have good reason to say no. Some time ago, there was a movie that came out with uh, Paul Rudd and Steve Carell. It was called Dinner for Schmucks. And the premise of this movie is a horrible premise, but it actually reflects this honor-shame culture that Jesus is getting at. In the parable, there's a group of executives, and the, the CEO of the company, the most important of all, every year hosts a banquet. And what he wants all of his higher-ups to do is invite the weirdest possible person to be their guest. Dinner for the schmucks. So all of these people are being invited under a false premise. They think they're getting invited because they're important and fascinating, but instead they're being invited because they are to be the butt of everyone's joke. They are being invited to be mocked and ridiculed. Now, Steve Carell in this movie plays a strange man named Barry who picks up dead mice off the, off the roads and uses taxidermy and recreates works of art like the Mona Lisa or different paintings with dead mice. He is a weird guy. And he gets invited to the dinner for schmucks because he's one of the weirdest people that Barry can find. And it's an honor-shame culture. You're inviting people to make fun of them. And Paul Rudd plays the character who, his name is Tim. He plays the character who's just trying to make his way up the ladder. And he's doing so at the expense of mocking others. Compel them to come. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame would be suspicious of an invitation to a banquet because society has taught them that they do not belong. And they would be concerned to know if this is a legitimate invitation or not. And there's other reasons that they may give. The first group gave excuses of how busy and important they were. But there's other reasons that these folks might give. For one, if you are blind, you know that you'll slow the servant down because someone will have to lead you by the hand. But nonetheless, compel them, make them come to my house, make them come to this banquet. I refuse to take no for an answer. The crippled and the lame cannot walk themselves. They'd have to be carried all the way to the banquet. And the master says, compel them to come. Remove all the barriers because the goal is to make the house full. Compel them. Make the house full for them and for us. One of the things at a theology and disability conference that... um, Pam Nordheis, myself, and Anders Nordheis were able to attend. Western Seminary hosted it just this past year. One of the things that was most endearing to me was that all of this work of inclusion is not just for those people out there. It is for us because we are all the body of Christ. For one, the body of Christ is more fully represented when all are invited And secondly, think about the things that we learn. It's for them and for us. When there's people who aren't just like us, we learn to see the world through the eyes of another. What might we learn if we focused on the intentional hospitality of inviting those who are different than us in ability or appearance or status? 
Maybe we would learn compassion both from and for them. Many of us would learn lessons about perseverance of those who face obstacles that we take for granted in our ability. Others would learn loyalty. One of the speakers shared that there was a company that took initiative, not even for financial gain, but they took initiative to invite people with uh, intellectual and developmental delays to be employees at their company. This was before there was high incentive for it, but they did it because they thought it would be right. They also thought that it would be a great detriment to their company. But instead, what they found were some of the most loyal employees that they could find were those whom they had given an invitation to, people who had never been given a sense of value or worth, people who are not accustomed to being invited. They became the most loyal employees that the company had, and everyone learned from them what loyalty looked like. Why? Because they were invited, because the goal was for the house to be full. What does it look like for us as a church to compel them, to make them come out, to reach out into the lanes? Because we're talking about the alleyways, the parts of society that we tend to ignore. The poor, those in poverty, the the blind, the crippled, the lame, those with either developmental or intellectual delays. What would it look like for the church to compel them to come in? Right now, not just in North Holland, but at the church in the U.S., we are not succeeding at that. Some of the most daunting statistics on the next slide are these. Of those who have a developmental or intellectual delay, either an adult or a family member who has someone, 52% do not attend any place of worship. 52%, that's half. 56% of those who tried to go said that they lacked support for, for basic obstacles to them that everyone else took for granted. There was no sense of support, either in structure or just in understanding the needs that were being faced. Of the limited amount that actually did go to church regularly, 32% had to change location because there were barriers, there were issues that were not being overcome. That, to me, is terrifying. And it also means that 52% of the body of Christ do not attend. That means we're lacking something. We're missing something. And we're missing opportunities to learn from others. Compel them to come. Remove all barriers. That's part of what our Reach Out campaign and our building project is all about, is removing the barriers And it actually is important for us to see barriers that we don't recognize or notice. And not just barriers of accessibility, although those are our first and foremost and maybe the easiest to see, but also sensory issues, learning challenges, things that we all just take for granted. Because maybe you're like me and you learn just by listening and hearing. But to remove all barriers to be intentional about what we learn, to get to know people, and to let them serve. This coming week, the Building Action Team is going to take a look at Compassionate Heart's new facility because we want to have the same kind of mindfulness that they had in designing their place. Because why would the church not want to have that same lens of accessibility? 
Let them serve. That's one of the beauties of inclusion, is it's not just about us reaching out to them. It's not this us-them dichotomy. But letting people serve, allowing them to have a sense of worth, asking, what do you do? Recently at my home church, a woman and her blind son began to attend. And it took a few months before anyone learned that the blind son can play the organ. All we had to do was ask. Let them serve. And it's not just charity. It's inclusion. It's involvement. And it helps people all take a sense of ownership. It doesn't create the kind of belittling sense that we're the able-bodied people here to help you. But it's we are all here together. And what do we learn from one another? As one theologian put it, it is important for us to be kind to others, but it is perhaps more important for us to let them be kind to us. We don't really understand how to learn to get used to people with disabilities if we never encounter them. We don't learn how to be kind or hospitable to them if they're not here. What do our children learn from the type of kindness that we not only show but also receive? Maybe kindness not always shown and received as we would, but an expression of it nonetheless. Because deep down, whichever guest category you find yourself in, Jesus understands what we all need. We all need a sense of belonging. And the church should be at the forefront of one of the most invitational places for people to belong. Eric Carter from Vanderbilt University gave a summary of ten things that identify what it does it mean for you to belong somewhere, for people to be present, invited, welcomed, known, accepted, supported, cared for, befriended, needed, and loved. These are not abnormal things. This is what we all need. And in the parable, Jesus is getting at these things. He's reaching out to those who probably are not often present, invited, welcomed, known, or accepted. Inclusion Sunday is about us pushing beyond just what we're normal and used to, but to be aware, to have an eye for abilities that are different from our own. And so the question is simple. Who are you? What kind of guest are you is maybe one question for us all to be cautious of. Are we sometimes too busy that we pass right on by, that that we don't even have eyes for the importance of the banquet? Or are we aware of ways in which we feel unwelcome, ways that we feel shame, ways that we are not sure if we fit in or belong? And do we have that same lens to notice others who might not feel a sense of belonging at this table or in this place? Most importantly, what kind of servant are you? The master sent his servant out not to, not to beg and plead for those who had turned down the invitation, but to compel those who were in the streets to come into the master's house, to join him at the table, to join them for the banquet. The servant had to go into the streets, into the alleyways, into the fringes of society, interacting with the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It's the same master who sends us. What kind of servants are we? Do we have an eye to see for who's not at the table? Do we have the vision to understand what kind of barriers we might be taking for granted that make it or break it for someone else to be here?
Do we understand that it's not just young people, but also all of us change in abilities over time? Are we the kinds of servants who want to go anywhere and everywhere to make sure that the whole body of Christ is included and represented at this table? I pray so. Amen.